Brian Stanton here with ASEP Frontline. Today we are joined by John Draper, who is the Executive Director of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And this is an important topic because we've actually done uh, topics in the past on suicide, especially among the risk among healthcare professionals. But one thing that we've always felt and seen is a gap in access. Um, you know, whether that, that gap that we're seeing in the emergency department with getting folks into uh, treatment, stabilization, whatever it may be. John, who actually uh, we'll talk about in a minute, has actually done some of that uh, crisis, uh, on, on-site crisis uh, intervention. But now, how can we make it easier for those that are um, on that verge to get help and to reach out and and to hopefully save a life? And so, uh, John, thanks for joining us here on ASAP Frontline. We'll start off by just giving us a little background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Happy to do so, Ryan. I'm really happy to be here with y'all. Um, so I, uh, I've i been around, uh, boy, in so many ways in crisis care since uh, 1989 when I first started working on a mobile crisis team. But before that, I uh, actually worked in a state hospital, outpatient clinics, um, so, uh, but to me, it was really a revelation to, to work on a mobile crisis team in Brooklyn, New York, which is, you know, one of the most racially and ethnically diverse areas in the country. And to go into people's homes with uh, various forms of psychiatric disabilities, many of them at high risk, going into their homes where they were experiencing uh, anywhere from psychotic symptoms to depression, suicidality, anxiety, uh, people of all ages um, w- was just amazing uh, because to me, uh, I realized that the best way to address mental health is in the world where people are having mental health problems in their homes uh, with the people that care about them often. Uh, and boy, was that perfect for assessment and for understanding their experience and also inter- intervening. Because um, when you leave their home with messages and caring, that's right where they live. They don't leave your office and then hopefully remember all that when they get home. You were in their home. So that was that was a light bulb moment for me, Ryan. And then soon thereafter, I, I, um, I was offered an opportunity to, uh, to work with the Mental Health Association of New York City, which is now called Vibrant Emotional Health, um, in 1996 to start up the city's first hotline, um, really with the idea that that hotline would help dispatch mobile crisis teams uh, to the, the very teams that I, I was working with and on uh, around the city. So I was really excited. I thought this is really a chance to kind of create this, this uh, you know, because I thought everyone should know about mobile crisis teams and very few people did. Uh, so we started this hotline, which was a crisis information and referral hotline, which is now called New York City Well. It's uh, been around for a long time. And uh, I oversaw that service um, really into uh, the attack on the city from 9-11, which was a, a game changer for this crisis service. It became uh, not only a, a service for people 24-7 uh, who were in crisis, but for a community in crisis and actually for the nation in crisis after that. We became a, a, a central hotline for 9-11 services around the city and the country and the world. And so that, that helped us get a sense that there was something bigger that we could do. And so uh, in 2004, we began 
we applied for the opportunity to want to run what is now called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And, and we've been administering the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline since 2004. And that is, uh, of course, the traditional 10-digit number that, that the Lifeline has been associated with since that time. Um, and the challenge here, which is the, the uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255 or 1-800-273-TALK. But there was, and of course, there's online uh, opportunities as well. But one of the greatest challenges um, and threats you know, to suicide is isolation. And, and so having that opportunity for people to reach out and get a hold of somebody that's willing to listen and to be there. Um, and a lot of the statistics that we looked at from prior were, were pre-COVID, you know, 30% increase in suicide rates since 1999, one in five uh, people over age 12 uh, having a mental health condition, 280 uh, people seriously considering suicide for every one uh, that carries through with suicide, but that was before COVID. And once we hit COVID, COVID brings together every aspect of poor outcomes with regard to behavioral and mental health, whether it is substance abuse, whether it's depression, anxiety, you know, the whole idea of fear, isolation, all of those things put together, COVID brought to us. And so all of these aspects, we've seen significant increases uh, during this time, uh, because of the the compounding in, impact of the pandemic, and so it rolls in nicely to the fact that the project that you had with the Lifeline is now taking on a new life itself, and that is we have nine one one, and we've been using that now for decades. I still remember when that came out, uh, but for the suicide prevention Lifeline, we have nine eight eight. So walk us through that and the reasoning why this evolution is taking place. Uh, happy to do that, Ryan, but I, I'd like to comment on uh, the very important comments you just made, which uh, was about, you know, kind of during and post-COVID, the importance of a resource like this. Um, you're right. There's a lot of, of you know, uh, high stress, high, just a, a cumulative amount of stressors affecting people in so many ways that uh, might even enhance risks. Um, we have not seen, by the way, an increase in suicides during the pandemic, and, and actually, arguably, one of the reasons that we have not, and, actually, and, and there's been some indicators that it actually could be lower, and one of the reasons is that this has been a shared experience for people. Um, uh, there is a sense that, um, that, that I'm not the only one who's going through this. And clearly you're not when you look at the data that you cite. I mean, there's uh, the CDC's data is, is uh, clear that there's been more people who've been anxious, depressed, and thought about suicide um, in the past year than, we, than the previous year or the other years. Uh, that does not mean that people are going to kill themselves. Um, what it means is people were, were collectively miserable. Um, now we are entering into a phase that is incredibly interesting and challenging and a little bit worrisome from my standpoint is that, um, and, and you would know this from working in emergency departments, um, that when following a winter where people are shut in um, and people used to say, well, during the holidays and the winter, that must be when people are the most miserable and more, most likely to kill themselves. Well, being miserable does not mean you're necessarily going to be killing yourself. What we have found actually in emergency departments is much more activity during the spring when doors start to open 
And some people have a great deal of energy perhaps to act on, on, on some of the things that they've been ruminating about, um, as well as seeing how other people are able to engage with life while they're not feeling left behind. And one of the things I, I worry a lot about is, is that um, in the coming months and year, there's gonna be a number of people who are going to be extremely excited about the end of this pandemic, the return to this new normal, so, uh, and, and, and engaging in, in all the activities they used to. And some may find that, well, I can't engage in those activities the way I used to because I've lost someone in my life or I've, I'm debilitated by this illness or um, there was something that was actually oddly um, comforting about being at home all the time. People who are socially anxious and could avoid the uh, uh, contact with others will no longer be able to necessarily avoid that as easily without people noticing. So there's gonna be some people feeling left behind. There's going to be, I think, more people having different types of mental health issues that are not collective that, are, that will feel fragmented and, as you note, isolated. They'll say, it's just me. Everyone else seems to be doing so much better. Um, so having access to some kind of care, and you're right, the pandemic also opened up telehealth in a way that we hadn't seen before. So the idea that we can reach out from our homes and get help um, is something that I think is, is, has been expanded and broadened as a result of the pandemic. And now with this three-digit number that is about to, is already slowly being implemented across the nation and will be implemented by July of 2022, um, I think that will, that, that will be recognized as an essential resource. Now, to your question, that was a long response to the question that you didn't really ask. Um, but if you like, I can answer your question now. No, absolutely. But I love that. I love that that you got into that, and and that is something that I personally had not considered, and that the kind of the somewhat protective nature for at least the um, major depression suicidality aspect of we're kind of all in this together. It's it's all it's kind of universal suck at this point, um, and then as we kind of move forward, um, as as that that then kind of turns that thing for the mind uh, and that psyche to start to say, wait a second, I'm still alone. Why just me? Why am I broken? Or whatever the argument is that, that kind of tear yourself apart. And that's not, I don't know that that's anything that we really consider. We always hear about the dysthymia, the seasonal affective disorders, those things of that nature. But putting that context of, of this time of year where a lot of folks are trying or making that move into spring and new life and, and that opportunity for people then to isolate themselves, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, that feeling of isolation uh, is a very interesting consideration. And, you know, I know that through the pandemic, we have seen a lot of the use disorders increase, the overdoses associated with, with opioids increase significantly. But I think that's interesting that thus far, and afraid, you know, afraid potentially that that's just a next wave uh, is the suicide aspect. And we've seen some within healthcare uh, just because of the, the fatigue uh, with Dr. Lorna Breen, uh, you know, for which we've got some legislation coming up. And that is, that's an interesting uh, aspect and I hope something that we don't see. But hopefully uh, you and your team are bringing this tool to bear. I mean, we've got the lifeline that's in place and 
2020, the Lifeline got received 2.4 million calls. And how does this transition uh, with the simple number, as opposed to remembering that 10-digit toll-free number? How does how does moving to this three-digit number change things? And in your mind, in your in your efforts, how does this evolution symbol that next step of, of the of suicide prevention? Well, Ryan, you 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 know use the term uh, access and how important access is, and you know we. Uh, people in, in EDs and anybody who's interested in safety concerns um, is where, well aware of this idea that when you are reducing suicide by promoting access to, or, or, or by reducing access to lethal means. And one of the things that, that we like to say about the hotline is, um, and while you're reducing access to lethal means, and sometimes you can't, Let's promote access to life-saving means. And, and, and when you're in crisis, that 10-digit n- number is going to be hard to remember, but people sure remember 911. If you have a three-digit number that's easy to remember and easy to dial, I mean, just again, few, fewer numbers to dial when, when you are in crisis can make a big difference when you are trapped in the tunnel vision of the pain that you're in. So, so we, we do believe it's going to be uh, exponential in terms of how it's going to increase access. Um, so that that is very much a factor on three levels. Not only does the lifeline alone get more calls every year, Ryan, but uh, we believe that people who might otherwise have called other helplines that have the 10-digit number are going to opt for that 988 number instead. People who might be calling 911 would otherwise call 988 if they can understand the difference between 988 and 911 and uh, as well as 911 even diverting calls directly possibly and then there'll be this marketing campaign that will be promoting this new three three digit number uh, and and those we do believe could add up to as much as uh, nine million calls in the first year and that's about three times I say calls that's contacts that would include, phone, text, and chat, because we see it as a multimodal service. But uh, right now, that's about 3 million contacts through uh, multimodal services that the Lifeline is providing. So again, we would see about a threefold increase in the first year is, is what we project. We don't know, but we project that. And when when the call is made um, and you know, somebody dials 988, who is on that other end of the line? Well, we've got uh, right now 190 plus uh, local crisis centers. I think it's important to understand what the lifeline is. You know, what what is 988 going to be building on the back of? Um, so there's, there's something really unique about about this service. To the, I mean, really, the FCC has never designated a three digit number. Uh, to a centralized administrator. Typically, when you when you phone 911 or 311 or 211, it goes straight to that local center in your county. There's no intermediary that then grabs that number and then dispatches it to some other place. And in this case, it would be the central administrator of the lifeline, uh, which is, is funded by SAMHSA. And in this case, Right now, it's us. And what happens is when you phone the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, it's a network of local crisis centers. And we then send the call to the nearest center to the caller. Uh, 
And then if that center is unavailable, we have backup centers. At each one of the centers, they're all trained. Uh, these are any, these are all people who've been at have, you know many hours, uh, if if not uh, uh, you know several weeks of training in suicide prevention and crisis intervention. Uh, we have standards and practices. We have evaluations that are done by independent evaluation teams to make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to do, and and this is a a a. Uh, uh, a service that has centralized standards and practices. Even 911 does not have centralized standard and standards and practices. Uh, so all the persons who answer the calls are trained in how to assess a caller and their level of risk and what's going on with them, but most importantly, to build rapport with them, to listen to them, to engage them, uh, to understand their experience. And based on that, help them get the care they need and de-escalate the crisis over the phone. Um, and we expect probably about, about 80 to 90% of the time we can de-escalate the crisis over the phone, which is another big difference from that other three-digit number, 911, whose job it is to dispatch, not to, not to solve the crisis over the phone, but to send somebody out to your home to address it. You talked about um, that 80-90% de-escalation uh, success rate, um, and, and we see this, the, the lifeline as exists at the, at the moment or prior with the 10-digit number um, growing at approximately 14% per year uh, or so. What are some of the, what are the positive outcomes that, that you guys have experienced with having this resource available 24-7 to those out there? Uh, who, are, who are suffering from crisis? Because in my mind, what I'm seeing is that if somebody who's who is in this state, this crisis, that action item, that action item that that we make or they make, we want it to be that call for help rather than that action item that may be a threat to their life. Or what are what are the outcomes that we're seeing with that access to the lifeline, whether it's through the the local resources uh, or through the centralized number? It's a really great question. Let, let's start with what happens just on the phone. I mean, we, we've been doing um, evaluations of the service. Um, actually, even before the service started, uh, crisis centers that were in the Lifeline were being evaluated, including the one that we were running in New York City, which was called LifeNet at the time, were evaluated by researchers that were federally funded to see if what we're doing works. I mean, uh, crisis hotlines have been in existence for over 50 years um, by the time they started to really have some serious evaluation done of them. Um, and uh, the, a team of researchers evaluated the lifeline and have continued to do so really for right now, gosh, 20 years. Um, and and uh, with you know 16 to 20 publications uh, about the effectiveness of the service. And what they found was that um, by the end of the call, and this was at the beginning before we even started to put standards and practices in place. Um, at the beginning, at the, at the end of the call, there was typically a significant reduction in emotional distress and suicidality. And then three weeks later, when they followed up with them, uh, they found there was even, even greater benefits still that they were actually doing even better than that three weeks later. And look, there's, there's no, there's no control group there. It's possible that if they had made no call at all, they would have been just fine regardless. That's possible. 
but but Ryan, for you know people like you and I have been working in crisis work for a long time, know that when a person is in crisis in general, yes, that's a transient state. Um, that's 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 a the nature of a crisis. It's it's a transient state. But what's also true is they got nowhere to go, typically, but up when they're on the floor. And if you can be a part of that in that moment, that can make a difference as to whether they ever get up off the floor because they could die or something else could happen to make it even worse, or they, new doors and windows could open up in their lives. That suddenly, if you sign a, even the smallest light of hope in there, uh, in that moment, uh, they start to look, like, look at life a little differently after that. So... We then also found some things that we could do better um, from those, those studies, and that, that led to even more standards and practices that have been in place that have led to other studies that iteratively have shown over time continuous improvement. But what happens after the call? Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that, that is really important is to think about this three-digit number as one day very much an alternative crisis care service with a different crisis care system than what 911 was set up to do. 911 was set up to have a public safety response, a public health response, clearly in, in relation to people with medical emergencies, but a public safety response relative to people with mental health emergencies. Um, so sending police and EMS to people's homes who were having a mental health crisis uh, typically has a very different outcome than if you send people who are a mobile crisis team, who are mental health workers, who are trained to provide a caring response, not a, not a scaring response. So what we have seen in a few areas, so for, and, and again, not all areas have mobile crisis teams, and that's a challenge for us. But what, in talking with some of the centers and the mobile crisis teams that they've had in their areas, uh, like, for example, in Georgia, before their crisis center went statewide, they had some counties that had mobile crisis teams and some that did not. In the, the, the counties that had mobile crisis teams, they saw four times or five times fewer police encounters and four times fewer visits to the emergency department than in the counties that didn't have mobile crisis teams. So, so the, the, the benefit was clear for Georgia that they had to make them statewide. And so that was the impetus for making mobile crisis services and this crisis hotline statewide that is now part of the lifeline. But that's an example of how important it is to make sure that we have mobile crisis teams everywhere. And Ryan, we're a far stretch from that. But again, there's other even beyond emergency departments, crisis stabilization units in the communities, crisis respite services, alternatives to the emergency department, that pulls people out of the loop of a rather arcane response that it was not designed for people with mental health emergencies, but for, for people with criminal public safety emergencies or public health medical emergencies. So let's talk about that impact. You mentioned 911 and you mentioned the crisis response units in Georgia. You know, as you envisioned it, it, envisioned this as 988 is rolled out more widespread. How do you see that potential impact on that, as you mentioned, that that system that is set up for that public health and public safety, that traditional 911 
and EMS and police response, how do you see this impacting those services? Because what we see is a positive patient-oriented outcome with that connection and that resource, but it sounds like as well there's going to be you know other areas where this is going to show benefit uh, to our communities and to our systems. So, so what happened in Georgia could happen nationally if you have, and this is again the beauty of having a national administrator of, of the line. So, what we plan to do is have basically a, a national platform that uh, all of our centers will be connected to. Now, 911 doesn't have that. Um, so, our ability to collect data from all of the centers and their experiences around the country in terms of the kinds of calls they're getting, kinds of help that people are, are needing and the kinds of response they are getting um, is something that we'll be able to collect and be able to provide um, relatively instantaneously. And we can do that over long spans of time or we can do it over 24 seven. But what that will enable us to do is to be able to compare the areas that do have these services with those that don't, just as Georgia did, and say, public health and safety officials, what do you think of this? Um, that, that could and should help to fuel advocacy for services when you see that it clearly reduces unnecessary emergency visits to emergency rooms and clearly un reduces unnecessary encounters with the police. With vibrant, uh, with vibrant emotional health, uh, which you've worked with and, and continue to do so, uh, the administrator of the Lifeline, as we discussed already, um, there are some key themes that have been established uh, with regard to the widespread rollout of 988. Talk about some of those themes that, that you guys have put together uh, in terms of rolling this uh, product and, and service out? First of all, we're waiting to hear whether or not we're going to be the administrators of 988. Um, we hope to hear sometime in the very near future. Uh, there was recently an application for this that was sent in. Uh, there was It's a competitive one. So SAMHSA announces that, should announce that pretty soon, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll be those folks. So we're, we certainly have ideas about how to roll this out. But we also, um, but we're we're very clear about what its needs are and 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 what it how it needs to be different. But one of the things that is is absolutely crucial is um, is making sure that the crisis centers that are answering the calls, who've been essentially volunteer centers, for and what I mean by that is they're not getting paid for, it. Um, but thirty percent of our lifeline centers um, in, in, uh, in a survey that we did a little over a year ago, uh, about 30% said they were getting calls to, or, or funding to explicitly respond to lifeline calls, a public funding. Um, so again, the overwhelming majority are not getting paid. Um, and they're, you know, basically applying funds from other services they're getting and answering the calls out of duty. Uh, so, so one of the things that we want to really emphasize in our uh, a primary message is that it is absolutely essential that our local crisis centers be funded uh, by whether it's from state or federal funds, uh, but they need to be properly resourced or this promise of 988 will not be fulfilled. 
Um, I mean, we know we have a longer way to go for uh, populating all areas of mobile crisis teams and crisis stabilization units. But Ryan, on July 2022, one thing we know that's going to happen is that people dialing 988 everywhere in the country are going to hit the lifeline. And right now, they're not resourced the way they could and should be. It's only going to get worse. So we are in the process now and we'll continue uh, this process of planning with states to prepare for 988 and educating them about the, the resource costs that are needed um, and projecting what kind of resources they're going to need so they can get ready because uh, a tsunami could be on its way and we do not want to not be there for crisis calls. You mentioned the July 2022 transition, uh, July 16th, 2022, um, and the 1-800-273-TALK is, is still active, will remain active afterwards. Kind of give us that timeline of transition and when folks, you know, the, the lay public or whoever uh, with, with physicians advising their patients or clients, whoever it may be, uh, of the rollout of 988. Well, we, I think though there won't be any national campaign that SAMHSA is going to be rolling out until July of 2022. Um, uh, but at that time, it will include uh, informing not only the general public, but providers, emergency departments, hospitals, um, uh, facilities everywhere that encounter people who could be in mental health crises about 988. I do suspect that, that a, number of, um, a number of therapists' voicemails will probably give the 988 number over time. Um, and we'll see, you know, increasing penetration of the messaging of 988 once it starts to build trust with the community, as there's more media, more stories about it, uh, more word of mouth about it, um, and, and, and more evaluations that show how it's working. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, every year it's going to build. And I, I think we're going to see significant increases in calls with each passing year. Talking with uh, John Draper, the executive director of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, if you want, there's more information available um, through the FCC, actually, uh, through FCC.gov slash suicide dash prevention dash hotline. You can check that out uh, to get some more information. But um, John, how can folks get more information if they'd like to contact you or have any questions as all this moves forward? Uh, there's uh, Hannah. Um, Hannah and our, our communications team are on. Uh, uh, we actually have a, uh, a, a contact. So it's info at vibrant.org. Uh, so you can send it there. For now, um, that's that's the, the, the best web address. Eventually, we'll integrate it more into the central website of the Lifeline. So a lot of information coming up and what we love to see as emergency physicians and the front line of the, uh, of the acute care setting is that we are improving access for our patients, giving them more options to get the treatment and the help and the support that they need. And even more importantly, uh, the discussion that we've had here with 988 is that it's the specific um, need resources uh, as opposed to a very non-specific approach, uh, this is something that can be very targeted uh, towards just as we would anything in emergency medicine, the specific treatment and approach that the patients need in their time 
of need. So, uh, John, I really appreciate you joining us here on the front line. Any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap up with some music here? Uh, well, no, it's just been a real pleasure, Ryan. But I, I, I have to say that one of the things that um, uh, that that when we first started this journey on 988 that really stays with me today is a conversation I had with my daughter, you know, who's uh, had her own mental health struggles over the years. And when I first heard about this three digit number, I asked her what she thought uh, about it. And she said, um, you know, she's an adolescent, so she knows everything. And uh, I, uh, I have to ask her advice or uh, I'll pay for it later. But she, she said, dad, uh, I think this will go further than anything else we could do to reduce the stigma against mental health in this, or mental illness in this country. And I said, well, why is that? She said, well, um, you know, we have a, a three-digit number for medical emergencies, but if we have one for psychological emergencies, people will know that those are real and that they require a very different and really important response. And that is people who care about you, not necessarily police who are coming there to try and see if there's a crime being committed. Um, and I that sticks with me because I, I, I think there's a lot of, not just stigmatization, but there's also traumatization, victimization, criminalization of people with mental illness uh, from all races and particularly people of color and communities that have been marginalized, indigenous communities. This is really an opportunity for us to create something for the people in a way that we haven't before uh, from the ground up and create equity from the ground up. So I'm, I'm really excited about being in this position, Ryan, and hope that we'll have an opportunity to do this with you and, uh, and all your, your colleagues in emergency medicine. I couldn't ask for a better context uh, to wrap up the conversation uh, today. John Draper, Executive Director, National uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline, discussing the new 988 number uh, that will be rolling out over in the next, uh, sounds like about uh, the next uh, 14 to 15 months, and something we definitely need to ensure that we are ready and implementing and educating through emergency medicine. As for me, you can contact me at rstantonatasap.org, rstantonatasap.org. We've got our Facebook page, which is ASAP Frontline, or at Everyday Med on Twitter. I also invite you to uh, to subscribe to the podcast, whatever, pl- uh, whatever platform you like. Uh, just make sure that you're getting it, uh, that you're downloading it, and that you're sharing it with your friends, neighbors, countrymen, um, everybody that's involved, uh, because we want to get the word out, because we get great, uh, great experts from around the country and around the world uh, to help make our jobs and make our patients' experiences better um, through what we do. And and I appreciate everybody tuning in. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.